part of, I think, the magic of the real estate Twitter community and the, the rationale for doing the event was that there's this real hunger for like, how do you do this? Like, how do you build a career at a firm in this space? And it's in part because it's a pretty lonely business sometimes, particularly when you're getting started. Like you don't really talk to your peers that much. You talk to brokers, you talk to investors, but you're not, you don't necessarily talk to a lot of other people trying to bootstrap these firms. So I felt like there was like a, a lack of content in that area. And there was one that like this, a bunch of information that's really valuable to a very small, but actually quite potentially quite wealthy community. So it's like, if it seemed like a great niche, right? Like from a business perspective, it's like, look, get a bu- bunch of people who actually have some dough who really could benefit from, from learning from each other. And so that was, the, that was really the impetus. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you so much for joining me today on the Fort Podcast. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this show, I would be super grateful if you would follow it on Apple, Spotify, or whatever platform you're listening on. And if on Apple, it would mean a lot if you'd leave a rating or review. And last but not least, you can check all these episodes out on YouTube. So thank you again for joining me and enjoy the show. This episode is brought to you by Fort Capital. I know what you're thinking. Here goes Chris talking about Fort Capital again, but guys, it's important to me. Fort Capital is a real estate investment firm based in Fort Worth, Texas. That's why my Twitter handle is Fort Worth Chris. We have a track record of transacting more than 1.4 billion in assets throughout Texas. That's crazy to me. 17 years ago, I bought my first house for $100,000. The team over at Fort is currently looking to acquire Class B industrial deals between 10 and $75 million throughout the major markets of Texas. In fact, Fort Capital was named the fastest growing real estate company in Texas by Inc. Magazine last year. To learn more about Fort Capital, visit www.fortcapitallp.com. Moses, thank you uh, for joining me for round three today. Oh man, thanks for having me. So for everybody listening, you know, Moses and I have become what I consider really good friends over the last couple of years. And it's been a couple of years since Retwit kind of formed and started. I think we're kind of still evolving and learning and more people are, are joining. And for a long time, my wife would be like, how's your friend Moses in LA doing? Uh, <laughs> Moses was, was talked about like a lot of my friends. And so, you know, I kind of want to kick off today's conversation with you know, someone who I hold in high regard, we've formed this retweet community, which for people that haven't been involved can sound really weird having like these internet friends and this internet life. And so I just kind of wanted to start off by just kind of having you just riff a little bit on where you've been in this kind of journey and like how you see it kind of where you are today. Yeah. So I'll, I'll echo that. My wife also is like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> I mean, she says that about a lot of things, but specifically about my, um, my Twitter obsession. But yeah, no, I mean, so I have found my engagement with the real estate Twitter community to be literally life-changing. And I don't, I don't say that lightly, like most importantly, like meeting friends and kind of like mentors like you and, and some other people, but also We've raised a lot of capital from people who we've met via Twitter. We have, I mean, I, the the conference that 
or the, I guess I should call it an event that we put on, uh, Reconvene, which was important for my career and I think will continue to be important for my career, was a direct outgrowth of that. And really, I mean, I guess almost more than the, almost into, maybe even more important for my like intellectual development has just been exposure to a whole bunch of people from outside my bubble, both professionally and like just in life. And I just, I mean, I, I don't think you can get that anywhere else. And I think it's, it's just been incredibly like mind expanding for me. So, and I echo so many of what you said, you know, we all live in our bubbles. We're all surrounded by kind of the same ideas. And most of the time, you know, they're great, but, but hearing from outside opinions is huge. Raising capital has been great, finding deals. But for someone that's kind of done it for two to three years, and maybe we kind of both started around the same time, I think you were a little earlier than me, you know, the first year was like, oh my gosh, there's all these people, this is awesome, I'm making friends, and then you kind of mature into it. I don't know how to ask this question, but if I said, where do you, what do you think the next two or three years for you looks like, knowing that you've kind of like set a foundation, you've kind of met a lot of people, what we're going to talk about reconvene, like, how did the next three years get better for you? as opposed to like burning out? That's a really good question. I mean, I have a, maybe a little bit of a like personality advantage in this sense, because I, I really would have been a teacher if I were like a less greedy person. It, so I like, I derive an enormous amount of personal satisfaction from both the learning and also the teaching aspect of it. And I mean that not just when I say learning, I mean it, I mean, of course it's valuable for my business to learn new things. Like I'm honestly looking at like a, a like a, almost like a flex industrial deal right now, which we're probably not going to do, but, but like to a large extent because of your influence. Right. So there's that element, but it's also just like, I like learning for its own sake and I like teaching for its own sake. So I do not experience my interaction on, on real estate Twitter, um, like as something that would cause me burnout. It actually, the opposite, it, it I derive energy from it. Part of what's so problematic about it, actually, from my perspective, and I guess from my wife's perspective as well, is that it's like, it's clear that when you're on Instagram for hours, you're doing something dumb, like it's bad, like you should not do that. For me, it's very often the case that being on Twitter is like the highest and best use of my time for a variety of reasons. And so it's like that it's hard to stop something that is both addictive and also good for you, Yeah, yeah. if that makes sense. Yep. When you're like telling people about your Twitter life or kind of this world you build on Twitter, how do you kind of explain it to them? All these people and they're sharing all the time and they're meeting and they're learning. A lot of people look at me like I'm crazy. Is that kind of the same kind of feedback you get? Or like, how do you kind of tell people about what you're up to? Um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, there, so certainly there's a bunch of people both in and out of the real estate business who are like, what are you talking about? So there's that. I mean, I always kind of like go back to the story about how we built our business from the first place, which was, you know, I didn't have, I mean, I had a decent network compared to a lot of people in terms of access to capital, but no, you know, I'm not, I wasn't raised on country clubs. Like, you know, my parents were hippies. Like I didn't have like a bunch of like rich people who invested in, you know, who are used to investing in private deals when I wanted to get into the space. I mean, I had enough to get started. I'm very fortunate for that. But to a very large extent, we built our, our capital base from me writing a blog, which is a great medium in a lot of ways, but doesn't have the same distribution that Twitter does. Like you're depending on Google to sort of like find your, your, your what you write and it works it, and it, it worked for us. But Twitter comes with 
built-in distribution in kind of like a better way. So my point is to say that like, it, I view it and I think it's easier for me to explain it to other people as effectively like a, an extension of things that we were already doing uh, that were successful for us. Okay. And, and taking that a step further. So we made all these friends, we kind of created and organized. And I think when people hear about it, it's like retweet is not some like thing you log into and it, it's just a community of people that seem to kind of get along on Twitter. We, you took it a step further and you said, I'm going to get everybody together in real life and I'm going to put a, a conference on that really kind of hits on the key things that have driven this community to be successful. What was your experience like, man? I mean, I know what my experience was like as a guest. It was incredible. But what did you learn from all this? Not only like how to throw an event, but like what does this mean for the world that all these people can get to know each other online and then like love each other even more in person? Well, let me talk about first kind of my motivation for doing it. And then we could talk maybe about like what the result was. One of the things I experienced, and I expect you did too, is that while there is plenty of content out there for like kind of like generic real estate investing, there's like, you know, how to be a landlord for dummies or whatever. And there are even more sophisticated books. There actually is, relatively speaking, like a dearth of content for people who are specifically in the real estate private equity business. And even more specifically, um, and this is a topic that you have done a lot of work on and I appreciate it very much, abstracting up one level. So you, you can read about what a private real estate private equity deal is, like what a pref is, what a promote is, like all that stuff. But the next question is like, how do you build a sustainable firm? Like, how do you go from just a person to having a firm with like repeatable processes and repeat investors and making enough money that you can live while you're waiting for your promotes to mature? And I, so I, I really, there's just really not a lot out there. It's fundamentally an apprenticeship business where you learn because your dad did it or because you happen to find the right mentors. And I personally had neither of those things. So I had to kind of like figure out a lot of stuff. And I made a ton of mistakes. And so, Part of, I think, the magic of the real estate Twitter community and the the rationale for doing the event was that there's this real hunger for like, how do you do this? Like, how do you build a career at a firm in this space? And it's in part because it's a pretty lonely business sometimes, particularly when you're getting started. Like, you don't really talk to your peers that much. You talk to brokers, you talk to investors, but you're not, you don't necessarily talk to a lot of other people trying to bootstrap these firms. So I felt like there was like a, a lack of content in that area. And there was one that like this, a bunch of information that's really valuable to a very small, but actually quite potentially quite wealthy community. So it's like, if it seemed like a great niche, right? Like from a business perspective, it's like, look, in a bu- bunch of people who actually have some dough who really could benefit from, from learning from each other. And so that was the, that was really the impetus in terms of how we felt after it was over. I mean, honestly, at first of all, I was like, okay, relief that it wasn't a like flaming disaster. <laughs> were you ner- were <laughs> like, you nervous as hell like the day oh, like the day before? Oh my god, <laughs> yeah. And I mean, yeah, definitely. I mean, and I think you could you could probably tell from how I was speaking and yeah, I mean I, I hope I hope you couldn't tell, but I think you probably could. It's insanely nerve-wracking. It's like, you know, you're holding a wedding for a lot of people, but like they're paying you to come. And so their expectations are that it not be a disaster. So I had a lot of faith. My wife kind of organized it. And I, you know, I have an enormous amount of faith in her. She's an enormously competent human being. And so 
but she was nervous and I was really nervous. And so anyway, so, so when it was over, it was like, okay, first of all, like, thank God this wasn't a disaster. And then I sort of watched the videos and started hearing from people that it more than not just being a disaster was actually something that was useful. And so that obviously is a, is a great feeling. And we're working actively on planning next year's event. I guess maybe something else to say is we made some money, like not like life-changing money, but you know, like decent money for, for the amount of effort that we put into it. And one of the interesting things is there's like a knock-on effect on our business, which is to say that like, I'm honestly like a little less hungry to do deals right now than I might. So like on the margin where I'm like thinking about, do I want to do this next deal or not? I'm like my, my, honestly, my quality bar probably went up. I don't know if I want to like try to quantify it in percentage terms or something, but it's just like, ah, you know what? Like if we don't do a deal like, like next year or whatever, like, you know, yeah. it's, we're fine. That's awesome. Yeah, well, maybe we'll talk a little bit about that in a second. You got feedback. You sent a survey out. You talked to a lot of people. Was there anything like that stood out on the feedback from this year? And then maybe how that'll translate into maybe something that changes next year or that maybe you do better next year or yeah. don't do at all? Yeah, uh, a fantastic question. And we were actually out scouting events last night with my wife. Oh, sorry, sorry, scouting venues last night with my wife and a woman who helped her organize and a guy. Uh, a guy who's a, a good a good friend of ours who 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 attended the event and so yeah so we were talking about this a couple of things one is like it's cool to be in LA Hollywood is maybe not the best location in LA and we're probably we're, we will not repeat that going forward we were a little bit handicapped by COVID in terms of the possible venue options like a lot of people a lot of like theaters were literally not answering their phone calls when we were having to book the venue. So uh, this year we're much less constrained in terms of, of location choices. So so we can do some maybe better with that. The other the other thing is the the so the speakers that we chose. There's this like tension between wanting to choose people who are relatable and also but but also people who are worthy of being listened to. People who have had real demonstrable success, right? And like. I kind of opted for maybe more like the latter. Like it's super, it's just awesome for me to hear from you and Keith. And but I think for some of the people who attended, it might have been helpful to hear from people who are like a little bit earlier career-wise, because it, it's more relatable. So we're probably gonna try to work that in. And then the final thing I'll say is that I think we have like five female attendees out of like 215 people. <laughs> we're gonna like we're gonna work on that. It's, I mean, our business is obviously overwhelmingly male, so it's never going to be 50-50, but like we, we could definitely do a better job of getting women there. So yep. I'm going to work on that. You kind of said quality bar. And when I think about you, not only in how you write, but just how you kind of stick to your guns and you don't really waver, you put a high emphasis on quality kind of across your life. You know, you said that maybe the event business, some of that income could also offset the desire for you to need to do the next deal. But let's kind of get into quality and specifically as it relates to kind of what your expectations are right now for finding a deal, not only in your value add strategy, but I really want to start keying in on this new strategy that you have kind of launched. So maybe let's start with the new strategy, which is a high quality building built. Kind of tell me what was the impetus and what are you doing there? Yeah, it actually comes from some observations in the value add business. So. The bar that we use for value-add deals is that we would like the unlevered yield on cost 
to materially exceed the loan constant that we expect when we go to refinance a project. So we, you know, we buy a building that's all screwed up, we fix it, we raise the rents, and, and we want the yield at that point to materially exceed basically like the cost of the debt. Like the, lo- the loan constant is like another way of saying the cost of the debt factoring in the amortization and treating the amortization is sort of like the same thing as interest. And we can talk about why we do that in a second if you want. But that's a pretty strict quantitative threshold. And the reason we do it is sort of twofold. One is it's a good quality bar in and of itself. It sort of like forces you to actually be adding value. Like it sort of strips away your pretensions or, or like financial engineering. It's like, are we making something with a yield? Are we adding real value? Are we making something with a yield that really exceeds the market? And then the other thing is more practically, when you do that, it allows you to refinance out like the vast majority of the capital employed in the project and to have a cash on cash yield on the stub equity that remains that's like really high. You know, like historically, we've like refinanced out all the money and then the yield is infinite because there's no money left in it. Or we leave 10% in and there's a 50% cash on cash yield on what remains. Like the numbers just get stupid. And those are like, you should definitely do those deals if you can do them, right? It's like the problem basically since COVID, to be honest, is that the numbers are out of whack. So whereas the loan constant right now for these kind of buildings, like is going to, on the refi, you kind of like, you're expecting that the loan constant is going to be like in the high fives, just based on like where interest rates are and their 30 year AM loans, amortization loans. And so the loan constant is going to be like in the mid to high fives, which means that you really want an unlevered yield of like six plus, you know, six, six and a quarter. And it's just like, I can't lie to myself. Like the stuff we're underwriting is like five or five and a quarter. And it's like, it, it just doesn't, that doesn't make sense. Like it's not, it's, it's just like not worth the, the hassle and the risk and everything. So that's what led us to the core strategy. Because if I'm underwriting a five for taking, and we can talk about what's involved in renovating one of these buildings, but it's just, it's an enormous amount of, of hassle and risk and time. If I'm going to get a five for doing that, and I can, on the other hand, just like go across the street and buy a brand new non-rent control building that's stable at a four and fix long-term interest-only financing on it, that seems like a better deal. It's just a better thing to do with money right now. I mean, one thing to say is that I don't conceive of my business, like I'm not a capital allocator in the sense that I'm not like sitting next to this rich guy with my arm around him being like, you know, you should put X amount of your capital in the S&P and Y amount in class B and industrial in Dallas, you know, and X percent in Los Angeles multifamily. Like I I don't, I'm not smart enough to do that. So my job is to, to take someone who's like, I would, I would like to allocate some money to Los Angeles multifamily and then do figure out how to, what the smartest thing for that person to do is like, what is the best way to invest in apartments in Los Angeles? And kind of what I'm finding right now is absent the tax, like maybe we should set aside opportunity zones because there's some, the tax benefits might make it so that it's worth doing value add there. But absent the tax benefits of opportunity zones uh, or maybe a reverse 1031 exchange, if you want to get really in the weeds, it just doesn't make sense to do to, with fresh capital to do value add deals right now. But so, so it's the, the smarter thing to do is to just buy these core buildings. And so that's what we're doing. Okay, 
real quick, you were talking about like your un your unlevered yield on costs is getting right now to you said like five, five and a quarter. But you said, did you say that rates to recap are at in the mid fives? I would have thought they were in like the mid no, twos. No, no, they're I, sorry. Did I hear they're, you wrong? They're, no, the, the, right now rates are probably like three and three quarters. Okay. But but you can't, and this is maybe a quirk of the LA market, you can't get a cash out refi that's interest only for any length of time right now, at least not without having the thing stable for a year and not without, and particularly if it's a smaller project. Like you can't take as given that the numbers we're talking about are for like sub-institutional deals. If you want to try to value add like a $15 million deal, forget it. You're not even going to get to five and a quarter right now. I mean, you're going to be worse than that. So for these small scale deals, when you factor in the amortization, that if you just take the, you take, like, that's what I mean by the loan cost. Amortization. So you, I got it. If you factor in the amortization, which we can have a debate about that. It's like a whole other interesting conversation. But in the real estate private equity business, like amortization is a disaster, right? Like you're paying, you, you pay the taxes on that money on the, Forget, obviously, the interest is 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 tax shielded. It's a it's a write off from a tax perspective, but you're paying the amortization with after tax money. So it's just a question of should that after tax money go to the investors or to the government? It's like it should go to the investors. It's, you know, so you want so you want interest only loans. That's just not available for cash out refis on the size deals that we're talking about. So what you end up with is from the investors' perspective, the cost of that loan isn't three seventy five. It's five and a half or whatever. I gotcha. Interesting. Okay. Just to be clear, when you were saying you can't cash out refi within a year, you do things all cash. Do banks still not even care about that? They want to see that you've owned the asset a year, irrespective of whether you've had a loan on it for a year or not. So the biggest banks with the cheapest capital will let you know your Wells or your JP Morgan Chase or whatever, they want to see a year of stabilized operations at the new rent roll before they will cash you out in a meaningful way. There is a, a tier of like local and regional banks that make their living basically, their capital is more expensive than the big guys, but they're, they make their living by being willing to cash you out like with a couple of months of stabilized operations. So your choice to get these cash out refis is those local regional banks or the agencies. And both of them have become considerably more gun shy about refis, in, cash out refis, in part because we still have the stupid eviction moratorium. So they're worried, uh, on top of everything else, the normal lender concern about cashing people out. They're also worried that your tenants are going to stop paying rent and you're not going to be able to do anything about it. So they're even, you know, they're, which means that they're compressing the amount of proceeds that they're willing to ha- let you take out. Got it. All right, I'll just ask a dumb question. What would all the buyers that are buying this shit right now say? Would they just say, hey, I have different underwriting or, hey, I'm willing to take less return or, hey, I'm just using cash. I'm not using debt. Like, what's the argument to the flip side if this stuff keeps flying off the shelf? I think it's a mix of things. One is, look, there's a there's a certain incentive you know you and i both know this that like gps have like you you know what what was the line like that they're going to keep playing the music you're going to have to keep dancing like there's an element of like my business is to put capital out and so i'm going to just close my eyes and put capital out and like hope it works out well and by the way it's like a coin flip where like heads i win and tails my investors lose so i'll talk myself into doing whatever i need to do to keep doing that 
So that's that's like a maybe the most cynical way of looking at it. Another thing to say is that we so we have a portfolio of stabilized buildings that we've owned for like 10 plus years now. And so we have very good data on operating expenses. And so which I do not believe that most buyers have access to. And so one of the things that's going on is that they're talking themselves into doing things because they're uh, they're they're basically like underestimating the opex and therefore overestimating the yield. So that's one. Another thing is we have I think ten or twelve different properties under renovation right now, and so we're constantly in the market for construction services and and buying materials. So we know what the renovations are going to cost, and it's like right now it's like eye-watering for various reasons. And so I think there's a lot of people who buy a building and they're like, look, you know, I'm going to rent, I'm going to gut reno it and uh, it's going to be 40 grand a door. And you're just like, <laughs> like, no, it's not. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like not even close. <laughs> um, so, but by the time they've bought the building, it's already too late, right? Like the, you, you can't, you know, so, and there's no way, like one of the jokes that I always make is that like, I wish I could short some deals. Like there's not a mechanism for shorting real estate deals, right? So like I can't, I am 100% confident that people buying some of these things are going to lose money unless they get bailed out by interest rates continuing to fall or something. But I can't, like you can't express that in any meaningful like financial way. So it's just like, well, you just screwed that deal up for me. I can't buy it now. And like, you're probably gonna lose money on it. But like, you know, that's just, it's kind of like your problem and your investor's problem, but like, I, you know, I can't, there's no, I, I can't do anything with that insight. Yep. Strip, strip mall guy said it the other day. He said, I think like experienced investors are losing out to inexperienced investors. And it's kind of what you just described is like, I don't think they fully know the deal that they're buying. They know what the spreadsheet told them they're buying, but as you and I know, spreadsheets in reality can be very, very live in two different worlds. Yeah. It's, I mean, it, I, I think like, even if you, had all of the underwriting numbers right today in Los Angeles, the construction timelines are just 50% longer than they used to be. Like, how do you factor in? It just, it takes twice as long to get permits right now. And like every inspector who used to be able to get out in two days takes two weeks. And so if you're not constantly doing that, you don't know. You're like, oh, it takes however long it takes to renovate a building. And it's like, nope, it takes 50% longer. So anyway, so I basically think that it's it's for the most part there's a, it look it's a low barrier to entry business particularly on this sub-institutional side. Like it's not hard to raise a couple million bucks and go buy a building. And like knock yourself out, but like the likelihood is that you're probably underestimating a bunch of the costs and everything. Yeah, it's probably not as relevant in LA, maybe it is, but in Texas if if you've kind of done well, everybody wants to build their own office building for themselves. You know, there's lots of land, you can and and people always come to me and they're like, "Hey, I want to do this." And I'm like, "Dude, you're better off overpaying for that building down the street by $100 and living a better life than you are, oh, we'll get it done in a year, blah blah blah." It's like, "Dude, it's a 3 or 4 year deal. It's a lot of years off your life. Don't do it." Okay, we're going to talk about the the new stuff that you're buying, but I, I want to keep going down this a little bit. You've built a company on this value add strategy, sub institutional, smaller deals in LA. The world's giving you what it's giving you right now. You're just going to keep. Is Moses going to stay disciplined and keep just waiting for something to change? Like, how are you processing all this? You have to, on one end, be getting a little bit uh, stir crazy, and on the other, you've done really good at being patient. And we'll talk about the fund that you raised 
which I give you tremendous credit for, but like, how are you feeling about all this? I'm not feeling great. (laughs) (laughs) You stir crazy? Am I getting stir crazy? No. I mean, look, the good news is I've had a combination of these core deals to distract me. I've had planning the event, real estate, Twitter. And like, I also like, I have a steady stream of people reaching out to me, like for advice all the time because of Twitter. So it's like, okay, I've got more time. I'll just like take more of those calls or whatever. So I'm not going stir crazy in that sense. We also have, like I said, we have a lot of projects that are in progress and like going into lease up and all that stuff. So there's, and, there, and refinance is going on. So there's plenty to do with, res- but, but I mean, yeah, it's not a great feeling to feel like you have, you had this business that really produced some pretty spectacular results for a very long time, albeit with a ton of brain damage and sweat and so it's not a great feeling, but I mean, look, like, you know, you talked about the fund, like we raised a bunch of money last summer with the idea that maybe there were going to be a lot of landlords who threw in the towel after the eviction moratorium and everything and turned out not to be the case. And we're, you know, basically released all the capital from that fund without having put out a dollar of it. That's a terrible feeling on the one hand. I mean, it's like, we there's a lot of time and effort and money that went into making that fund and a lot of people, you know, a lot of relationships and all that stuff. And the idea of, sort of not being able to put it out is heartbreaking. But on the other hand, like I can't emphasize that this is going to sound really hokey. I hope that my children can raise money from the children of our current investors, like 30 years from now or whatever. So like viewed from that perspective, if the choice is to do a bunch of like mediocre shit that like is not going to work out well for our partners or go figure out some other way to make money. Like I'm going to choose the latter because the relationships are more important. I I firmly believe that we will eventually have a cycle again. Who knows when that is? There will be opportunities to do this value add stuff. We will do a bunch of it at that time. And I want to be able to call these people and have them not hang up on me. So it's, it's, uh, it was honestly like a pretty easy decision to make. For anybody listening to this, I just want to make this really clear of what happened and how this is especially in today's market almost unheard of. Moses went out and raised 20, 30, was it 30 million? How much did uh, you raise? 20, 23. 23 million dollars last year and thought I'm going to put this money to work as a response to some opportunities that are going to come up in COVID. As we're living in a world where NFTs are selling for a trillion dollars and Elon Musk made a billion, a hundred billion dollars in the last six months in net worth and, and things are going bananas. Moses decided to not spend $1 of that fund because it didn't meet his requirements. I mean, it's almost unheard of. And that's somebody that sticks to their guns. I have a tremendous amount of respect for it. So one one just question I just kind of have is what was the investor reaction? Was everybody like, damn, dude. Like, I love you 10 times more because now I know when you tell me you're going to do something, you're going to do it. Or was anybody like, man, you should like put it to work. I need it to work. Honestly, a couple of people had that latter reaction. And you know, like the truth is, well, I want to put this delicately. My, I, I am utterly uninterested in one-off relationships with people. I don't put any value on that. Maybe I mean, in some ways, maybe I undervalue that. Like it's, it's actually good to just make money and like part ways. Like there's nothing wrong with that. I, but I, for whatever reason, I'm just like not built like that. So someone who says that to me, it's like, in some ways it's kind of like, okay, like we're probably not the right fit going forward. And like, it's probably, it actually may not be the worst thing in the world that we didn't buy a building that, and in, with the intention of owning it together forever. 
like maybe maybe we just that would like that marriage would have ended up badly anyway so better not to have got married but with the exception of those people i think the the feedback has been extremely positive what we did specifically is we said look anyone who wants can be out right now if you want to stay in we want permission to buy these core deals because we think that's the smartest thing to do right now and we want to extend the investment period by another year basically we burned a year where we couldn't find anything so we're saying you can be out if you want now or stay in and extend for an extra year. And frankly, like the response that has been mixed, like a bunch of people are like, look, we're only interested in the value add strategy. So thank, thank you for your discipline, but we're out, which is a totally reasonable response. And I sort of like was at pains over and over and over again to be like, I am not going to take this personally. We're not going to have hard feelings about it. because they signed up for a strategy that we couldn't make work. And like, so that's why we're giving them the, re- like the opportunity to be out. And so it would be for me to then get upset that they didn't, that they didn't stay in is ridiculous. So we've had a mix. Like some people are like, look, thanks a lot, but you know, call us back when you're ready to do another one of these and we'll definitely be in. And other people are like, look, we want to put money in Los Angeles real estate. And if you tell us that this is that core deals are the smartest thing to do, let's do that. The coolest response by far was this guy who's like multiple, you know, long, long time LP of ours now, who's just, he's, he's this awesome guy who's a, he's like a, He's been an executive at a series of PE-backed companies, and he's made a lot of money on exits. And so he, this is like a way for him to take some of that money and put it into real estate. And is like the best, most hands-off, awesome dude. Just like talks to me very rare. He's super bright and, and incisive when we do talk, but like mo- mostly leaves me alone. But he wrote to me and he was like, look, I'm investing in these core deals with you on a deal-by-deal basis anyway. I guess I would prefer to do that as opposed to being in the fund. But if my commitment to the fund is the difference between you moving forward with the fund and not, I will be in the fund. In other words, saying like, I trust you so much and I appreciate what you did so much that you tell me what's best for you and I'll do that. And like, that is, that's the kind of partner that I want. That's the kind of partner I want to be. And that's the kind of partner I want. And we'll see what happens, like whether where where we end up. We're not we haven't kind of kind of got enough decisions from people yet. They still have another couple of weeks to decide. But that's like a that's who I want to be in business with. If that yep. makes sense. Those are like family. Those, that's like a family. I mean, yeah, that, and that's, that's a guy who you know, and, and, and like I would run through walls for that guy. You know, and our and so would my partner, and so would our organization. And that's you know, and we would we would put up with a lot to safeguard that guy's capital and and keep the promises that we made to him. And and to anybody listening is like that relationship takes years and years and years to build. If that gentleman that you just mentioned came and met me, even with a track record, it's like it would take years for me to be able to get to a point with him where he would say that. And it's it, it's value that you can't quantify on paper, but it is the most valuable part of our business. Totally, real estate not cheap. Don't exist without that level of trust. I mean, You're that's right. a, that that one is a particularly high level of trust, but like. Fundamentally, real estate private equity requires someone else's private equity. (laughs) You know, I mean, that's like, that's the business. So you lose that trust or you fail to build it in the first place and you have no business. When does private equity turn into non-private equity? Like, I guess once it's your own family office is when you can shield the private equity part of it. Um, Exactly. Okay, let's talk about LA just for a little bit before we start talking about the new strategy. So, and this isn't LA specific, but the eviction moratorium. I'm an industrial. I have not had to deal with this. From my perspective today is there was some moratorium that basically said you can't evict people for a period of time. 
Was that all people or was that some people? How have you interpreted what's going on and specifically what's going on in LA? Yeah, so well, the, there was there's the national eviction moratorium, the CDC one, but honestly, it wasn't relevant in LA because we had a much more stringent one here. And basically, the the LA one is actually even stricter than the the, the state of California eviction moratorium is over, but LA has one that's even stricter, and it basically says you can't evict anyone for non-payment as long as they say that they are COVID impacted. And there's no like, they just have to say I'm COVID impacted. There's no. It's literally just like, there's no proof. It's just, that's the, okay. And that state of emergency persists until the mayor declares it over. Or there's like some deadline in like spring of 2022 or 23 or uh, spring of 2023, I think. So the, I mean, the problem with a program like that, and I can't, I mean, the apartment owners really screwed up in the politics around this, is that like, if which mayor is going to be like, oh, the eviction moratorium is over? Like, no chance. Like, what's the political upside for anyone to declare this over? Like, there, there is no political upside, right? Like, there's, so basically, like, we're probably, you know, not, it's not going to be over until whatever that long deadline is. And I mean, of course, people who are in, my old housekeeper lost all of her clients during COVID because a lot of people were like, she had stopped working for us years ago, but she lost all of her clients because people didn't want a housekeeper, understandably. I mean, and so she can't pay her rent right now. So that woman, like she should not be homeless. There is a strong argument for protecting that person, full stop. The argument is much less clear for someone who moves into like a $4,000 apartment and then like two months later is like, nah, you know what? I like, I don't feel like paying rent right now. Like that, that's just uh, to me. And the fact that like, we're not separating those two. Okay. So it's not separated. It's just, it's, it's like nonsense. So are your people paying? Yeah, luckily. And this is, and is this just out of the goodness of their heart at this point? I mean, look, the, re- the back rent is collectible. So at some point, it's just not collectible via eviction. It's like you could, we could go sue people and stuff like that. I mean, I really don't. It's like my nightmare is doing yeah, that. Yeah, you want that um, like you want a hole in your head. Yeah. So goodness of their heart. Like the truth is, so we've collected kind of like 92, 93% of the money all the way through. And look, we run pretty high-end apartments and our tenants tend to be pretty, like people who are pretty like financially responsible and have good jobs. And so for the most part, they've, lived up to their end of the bargain, which I can't tell you how much I appreciate. Like, obviously there are like random people who don't, and some of them are actually COVID impacted and a few of them probably aren't, but the vast, vast majority of people have, have kept their word. And, you know, I'm incredibly thankful. And if you had asked me, I'm like by nature, somewhat of a cynical person. And if you had asked me before this, what percentage of people would have paid, I would have guessed much lower than what actually happened. And I guess maybe I'll say, we talked about this during the COVID episode, whatever that was, like a year, year and a half ago, whatever it was. We got some advice from our largest investor at that point, which was, he's like, look, I've been through a lot of cycles. Don't freak out. Like, tell your tenants not to freak out. Tell them it's going to be okay. Tell them you're going to work with them and we're going to figure it out together. And we did that. And I think that that was like incredibly good advice. Like it set a tone with all of our tenants of like, we're in it together. We're going to figure it out. And a lot of people didn't do that. And they were aggressive and people had, there were rent strikes and all kinds of crazy stuff that happened. And we, we mostly avoided that kind of stuff. And I think it's honestly because our 
tone and the way we've we've handled our relationships with our tenants all the way through has been like pretty we've acted like partners to them i guess is what i'm trying to say that's great man so if, if somebody's coming to lease a vacancy right now and everything checks out are you like all right we're gonna sign this but you gotta pay i mean look you do the best you can but it's and i'll tell you one of the like obvious unintended consequences of this of this regulation is we've tightened up our application criteria. I mean, you have to, you can't, you got to be insane not to. And I, it's really unfair because there's a lot of people, I, I like firmly believe that people should have second chances in life. Like there's a lot of people do dumb stuff, particularly like in their early adulthood. And it, it just, it breaks my heart that to have people's like entire lives or big portions of their lives ruined by that kind of stuff. So I'm just like personally in favor of second chances. And the problem is that when you have this kind of regulation, you can't, it's much, much harder to take a chance on a marginal applicant because you're just like, I, I can't get stuck with someone who's going to keep my apartment for an indefinite period of time and not pay me. So you like default to wanting co-signers and then it's like, well, okay, so you're, it's great for the rich kids who have rich parents who can be, who are strong co-signers, but you know, what about the kids who don't have that? And it's just like, it, it's really, it's, it's awful. It's, and it makes me feel bad as a, as a manager, but I got to do what's right for our investors and the property sure. owners that we manage for. Yeah. Yeah. At the end of the day, your investors are not hiring you to, at some level, you got to do the right thing yeah. for, for making. We're providing a service hold. and it's a, and we, and we have, God knows the service that we provide is regulated in the sense of like, we have to fix the building and when it breaks and it's got to be safe and clean. And we spend a, an, or, an awful lot of money on, and time and everything doing that. And you got to get paid for that. Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please follow the show on Apple, Spotify, or subscribe on YouTube. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and chairman of Ford Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Ford podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Ford Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.